Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, as the case may be. Welcome to the June 8 edition of the Odelay Show with C.G. Brazewell. Uh, subject of uh, this program is uh, uh, central banking. <clears throat> A little bit of personal experience with a little bit of editorial uh, and opinion uh, and a little bit of historical context, hopefully. Give uh, some fresh perspective to the matter. Economics is uh, also often said to be the failed mathematician's uh, science. And um, it's often uh, where the below-the-belt punches come in terms of sociological or uh, even political activity. Um, uh, it... Uh, uh, you know, economics is often overlooked, it's often myopic, um, and it's subjective. So it it can be easily argued, anything can have an economic argument behind it. So all really anyone needs to do is catch uh, the people with their pants down or inattentive, <laughs> barf up some bilge about... Uh, an economic argument and an implement policy. So we have to be careful about that sort of thing or else wars go on forever and ever and ever, for example, which is my primary uh, gripe with uh, uh, central banking. Um, it's not to say that we don't need a nice federal dollar for all sorts of reasons that the tool is needed. Um, and it's also, uh, for the same reason, that's the strongest uh, uh, winning suite uh the, the libertarian ideals and the even the the American Libertarian Party uh, has and it's the it's the foreign policy um, and the uh, non imperialistic uh, disposition um, uh, international bullying is just as unconstitutional as bullying among two individuals here domestically or just as much of a, uh, an egress too. Uh, transgressions doesn't matter it doesn't the constitution is still binding even if you're uh, even if you're on foreign shores because those affirm uh, natural liberties no yoda uh the cat's in my tea my herbal tea it was very thoughtfully uh, uh, provided to me by way of uh, the, the impressive logistical web that brings loose leaf tea to the local grocery co-op um, on the high seas and wooden ships. So, um, let's see here, people. Central banking and the problems of it. Uh, uh, the Constitution of the United States indicates that uh, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. <clears throat> Basically, you can't just... Uh, the federal government doesn't have the power to just uh, make an across-the-board tax. It's like, this is a tax, here's the rule. Um, the 61st Congress, during the... Uh, in the in the Taft administration... Um, brought forward and uh, ratified the the 16th amendment 
which um, basically flew in the face of that uh, the taxation, the no taxation without capitation uh, philosophy that was put forward in the Constitution. This was in uh, 1913. In the run-up to um, the Great War, which we, which is taught in schools now, in public schools, as World War One, it was in the um, uh, a time of the the on the 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 firm cusp of the thrall of the uh, in, industrial revolution, early twentieth century. Um, which powered the war machine, and that central government financed it. It's 2016 now. It's been 102 years since the Great War started. Um, and what is it? It's about it ended. It ended 1918, so 98 years. I could be wrong about that. Approximately 198 years since it since the since it ended in the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and a lot of those <clears throat> central banking policies are still in place um, as essentially a, uh, the war chest that was assembled for war that a lot of people didn't think we need to be involved with capitally because that wasn't part of the great project that is the, the American colonies in the United States. People came over here, business people, because they were tired of the ages-old bloody bickering between the brothers <clears throat> on the European continent. Sick to death of it. Just thousands of years of it. Just water in those green hills and mountains with blood. That's one of the reasons people got tired of those old politics, because you couldn't get away from it. Those old, those old comments came down to it, <clears throat> you know, and it's just unavoidable. Therefore, when this government in the United States was established, um, you know, it was just all business. All. People were tired of the religious influence, and religion breeds war. At the end of the day, the sins of the father, and we go to war, you know. They were tired of that. This was a news project in political science, and that was something that was being left behind. And so that's why those were the some of the vocal and most cogent arguments against getting involved in either of those world wars in the early in the 20th century they're still going on today um yeah, and and just because of what happened during the last one well this has been going on this the cold war that followed uh world war 2 um well he said, he, she said, he said, these events led to here now, and we have to do it this way. Well, that was the same argument you got leading up to one. That was the same argument you got leading up to two, which was ended with a, as it's taught in, in um, the public schools now, with a mass murder um, um, on the part of the Allies and the United States Military Command. Uh, upon civilian targets in Japan. Um, then came the Cold War. So that's important politically. 
the the same sort of well it's always been this way and we're going to do it this way and there was the previous war so we have to do this one that's the same sort of retarded backwards byzantine idiot logic that was always being deployed on the old european continent people were coming here to get away from and therefore that's why those such arguments were the strongest one uh against for one thing uh finance in the central bank to to capitalize those those the first global wars and even getting involved in the first place interesting not all states ratified the 16th amendment some didn't and then did some didn't review it um the southern states were easier sold on the idea because there were more there were the hand, the wealth was in the hands of fewer because a lot of the humanoid human population were slaves and not in, at the time not enfranchised um with executive vest they couldn't vote so to them it was not that big of a change they could see what it was but they could see why it was useful uh Little history, President Taft's father was um, a Yale graduate. Um, or, uh, well, Mr. Taft was a, was a Yale, um, I believe his father was too, and his father was a United States Attorney General and Secretary of War, um, which follows. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush was the Central Intelligence Administrator. Um, his son was a was a Yale grad, I believe. I, do, I believe senior was a Yale grad as well. Um, um, little political science for you there. Who was the sixty first Congress? Uh, you know, it was they, they. Their major legislation was the Payne Aldrich Tariff Act, the Man Elkins Act, the Man Act, Judicial Code of nineteen eleven. Constitutional Amendment, 16th Amendment of the United States, um, submitted to the states for ratification. Republican majority. Um, and, uh, and, and both chambers of the legislature. So anyway, those wars are over. They're supposed to have been. It's debatable whether we should have been involved or not. Um, as I mentioned, the Libertarian... Uh, platform is one of uh, well, it's often often summarized by a, uh, a quote uh, from an American statement statesman to speak softly and carry a big stick. Uh, but if you're a criminal, um, well, then you're not allowed to carry a big stick. You are what local law enforcement would call a prohibited possessor at that point. And uh, then, you know, there's a difference between a a, a kind of night watchman and a bully. There have been American heads of state that have warned of the um, military-industrial complex. Um, you know, on their way out of office, is that, uh, is that Eisenhower? Forgive me, I need to look it up. And and uh, of course, there is a, a petroleum-industrial complex, and um, you know those old standard analog wars on top of which sat bureaucracies. Those were a big, big business, and it was a big deal, and it was huge. But they're wars. 
which means that someone failed to keep the peace. And, and in those instances, it was someone back on the other continents, which the Americans had all left for due cause and didn't want to get involved with often. But there was money and intrigue and murder on the high seas to be engaged. And the dark face of humanity, even Americans as they were, couldn't resist it. And began uh, taking over where soon the British Empire would leave off. Imperialistically speaking. Um, and that doesn't do anyone any favors. Taxation without capitation essentially sold out uh, the American labor force um, and and in, implemented an essentially a de facto caste system where management and, and labor couldn't were different animals entirely um, in a post colonial world a post enlightenment world there is no place for a war um, so there's, there's got to be a way around it Piece is critical, and I've said on the show before, in the the greater court, um, those which ultimately matter, you one is either for peace or not. And history doesn't smile on those who aren't, because there's always a way. Um, you know. Bullying on the high seas and imperialism is in conflict with the you know, common maritime law. It's uh, one thing to speak softly and carry a big stick, and it's another thing to aggressively you know, occupy foreign lands for the uh, purpose of exploiting natural resources and implementing and enforcing force majeure policy you know, for purely political reasons, for example. I mean, once you establish your worldwide military, you're aggressively occupying worldwide military that runs on hydrocarbons. That makes it very politically difficult when all the locks, balls are grabbed to have it go one way. It makes it very difficult to, let's say, try to implement global, ecologically friendly uh, energy policy. Okay. So, a watchful maritime presence and an occupying strategic presence are different. One's a deployment in a military sense, and the other is a deployment in a paramilitary sense, if you will. One would and could, one does and did. Um, it's the opposite of a a military occupation is different. It's it's the opposite of a drawdown to resume normal relations. That's where enemies come from. Now, can our intel handle problems? All politics is local. All law enforcement is local. Yes, it can. To what extent is this a drill? To what extent are you, what you're seeing on TV a lie? I don't know. Good question. That's why one must pay attention. That's be discriminating regarding what information you hear and see and believe. Uh, 
aggressive posturing takes away from the efficacy of the United States uh, meeting any common maritime obligation to unequivocally stop and render aid where where it, it is necessary. Instead, its role becomes the political tool of uh, a warlike minority. All mariners have an obligation to help where they're uh, needed and able as they can and not to intentionally create problems. You know, it's all about defense and intelligence. I had an old friend one time, a woman. She was really young and pretty. It was at um, the newspaper, one of the newspapers where I used to work. I was thinking, I, this, the, I was given to drive her around and show her, like, some t- the town in my Jeep at the time. And, um, she was like, basically, we, it came up, assault. She's like, well, mainly it's just all about being aware. Or she's right. Um, it's okay to have one's big stick, but but a war machine, a big toy, occupying our terrestrial mount. No, that's wrong. It gets in the way of forward-looking R and D, progressive implementation, implement, implementation of technology. Um, you know, housed and cuckolded in old religious closets that breed war. And do a horrible job at educating the children and basically give them bad information and decapitate people. Intellectually. So the constitutional standard that's to be borne by all United States citizens is one of respecting people's natural rights and liberties and not being a bully. Whether at the institutional level or personally whether here or abroad. I mean, it just so happens that we basically are the bullpen for if there needs to be somebody to come out and square somebody up, they're out of order. I guess that's fine. But if we start slipping on the ethical moral high ground, then we lose any and all points of merit that we might have accrued for just being a competent nation an ethical nation which holds itself up and respects separation of church and state for all of the obvious reasons that it should now it's so backwards you can't really one can't really church as one wishes because of the church and state so badly being conflated you know there's like one church So you can't church. The government's unable to protect and keep those separated. And you can't state really either because the state's completely infiltrated with mania, with fanatics. I don't know where they all came from. That wasn't what was in the eyes of the people who the business people who came over here. Anyway, I certainly don't like it. And that's it engenders fraud and most of the domestic capital is tied up in fraud. And then the rest of the federal dollars are just being humped and pumped by a central banking organism that does everything except what the central banking organism ought to be doing. There is no reason for any of us to be piss poor, if you will, at this time. 
Don't edit that. Piss isn't a bad word. Hey, words are words. Okay? You know, anybody flinches at that, then I'm incumbent as the rating system despot. You better watch out. You don't want me to get colorful here. Or do you? Central banking is the motherboard of imperialism. And as I mentioned regarding foreign policy and instead of occupying countries which, you know, global imperialists dis- do intentionally in bombing them, you know, and kowtowing them to an antiquated Byzantine economic system that creates pressure. You know, anything, if we're going to pump central, if we're going to yoke the American workforce for the purpose of pumping all of its sweat equity into capital, symbolic capital overseas, that shouldn't be for war. It should be to build universities and for ecological projects. We should go cover every square inch of, of, you know, countries, whole countries with solar cells. Pretty soon, no one want to bomb those. <laughs> you know, just a big, huge waste of money and time and people. It's infuriating. To the degree this really happening. I don't know. Maybe this is all a bad dream. But those libertarian ideals are, again, why this, the Europeans were here in the first place. Well, some of the Europeans were here for gold. And to rule, you know, and you see that. I mean, there's there, you know. The British weren't the only ones that were come over to the New West. Which down in the Florida, Cuba area looks suspiciously like Southeast Asia. <sighs> oh, wow. What a conspiracy. So how about a foreign civil corps instead of uh, occupying militaries? You know, World War One ended 100 years ago. Arguably, we shouldn't even have been there. Now, we sit back and play the referee, fine. Anybody who's able are to. Uh, the Russian Federation is also big enough to do that. So if and when governed properly, it can also serve in that role. Uh, you know, Healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's why they call the United States and Russia or 10 or 20 years ago the last remaining superpowers. It's different now. I mean, every natural citizen of the earth is incumbent to such a superpower. That's how of being, of, of political enfranchisement. That's how political power works. That the individual is empowered. Regardless of what standard this is being symbolically born. I mean, there are plenty of other nations who are capable of deciding whether or not to be malefactors or not, regardless of whether they're NATO nations or not. Um, You know, it's probably a bad time to industrialize mainland Asia with coal and oil and gas, probably so, and probably a bad time to have 
additional offshore drilling and production booms, considering the tipping point ecologically that the terrestrial mount is facing. It doesn't need to go that way, but the military-industrial complex forces it down that route. Like I said, instead of carpet, instead of military occupation, put solar cells in a space elevator, okay? In a country about the size of whatever, you know, Texas or Arizona, somewhere, elsewhere, and just see how that looks on the books. Um, quit funding the war machine. Um, the constitutional government of the United States wasn't intended or designed to be an imperial entity. And if the people start applying the Constitution as it was written to accommodate egalitarian business, notwithstanding the nature of the times at the time, People often won't hear a constitutional argument because there was slavery in those days. There's slavery now. There's sex slavery. There's Jim Crow. Okay? Don't blame something in the past like it ain't happening now. Number one. Number two, it was wrong. But in terms of political science and philosophy, intellectuals who wrote it, notwithstanding what they did or didn't know any better than to do institutionally, Nevertheless, we're doing their best at an effort to, you know, at a better government than all of the religious dogma and all of the age-old blood wars that were going on in the European continent. It was an effort in good faith. And they weren't all the same, you know, person. And walk back in time and think about it. The next time any of your activities may contribute to the dead hand of, an, uh, 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 of a still active Jim Crow or black law, watch out. Then you have yourself. You have to be very aware, careful what you walk into. There are bear traps everywhere. That's one of them, one of many. The reason our economy isn't working necessarily, or our political system correctly now, is that it's not being applied as it was designed to be to function. Okay, just just not. It, it's something else. I mean, and, and people who kind of understand it. This is an interesting thing about presidential candidate and casino owner and reality star television. Did uh, Donald Trump? He, in terms of a lesson taught, pursuant to political science regarding the nature of the office that these people are campaigning for in the fall. He, it is a chief executive office, no more, no less, by like standard bare minimum definitions of it. Yes, head of state, yes, commander in chief. There are a lot of hats that can go with the office. But one of the reasons he's been shuffled out there is because he's actually an executive, and that's all the job really needs to be in terms of minimalist government. Now, as commander in chief, I'm more interested in seeing penny for penny you know a civil corps putting up peaceable infrastructure elsewhere you know progressive 
energy R&D infrastructure as opposed to carp- you know, bombing or occupying or installing viceroys <laughs> or working around the fringes with Cold War and knavery. All of which Latin and South America got so sick of a zillion years ago, they don't even, you know what I mean? They debauch our dollar intentionally with all of the cocaine nearly. I mean, why not? At least it's a cash crop. What did NAFTA do? Just egged that on. Hillary Clinton. Is what they call a rhino. Right? Or whatever. I mean, she she forwards the corporate interest. The... Most of the so uh, such a huge percentage of the American or these days international wealth in the very hands of very few. The United States has become a romping ground for just a very few rich people to clob a clop a clop all over the place and implement their policy. There are not that many people who philosophically, when they understand or if they do already understand, who are going to support the corporate dinosaurs whose old money pays to put. People like Senator Clinton in the executive office. And you know what? She won't do the job of a chief executive. People say, well, the the presidential office is so much more to it than just the chief executive. Yeah, but that's part of it. So many miss the point. That's one thing that Trump doesn't miss the point on. As badly misspoken as he may be, I don't know. I don't have a television. I have no idea. I've never seen him talk politically really not anything other than sound bites and that's not communication that isn't speech he's a complete cold call for me i could sit on a grand jury for him unbiased or a jury because i don't know him i've never heard him talk but i do know what his credential is and also he is an american businessman i'm sure he has offshore interests i'm sure he has foreign assets but it would appear based on the wikipedia entry about him that most of his holdings are here so he might have, as the executive officer of the you know, United States of America, the strongest dog in the hunt when it comes to preserving the domestic economy, when most others seem to be perfectly willing to just purge it all away into foreign wars on foreign soil instead of a civil court. I mean, if you're going to dump the, the commonweal into the sea, at least do it with peaceable civil infrastructure, a civil court, something. Just give away, you know, universities. If you, you know, build whatever. So I have that to say about, you know, Mr. Trump. I'm tired. I'm reading in the nation. I'm very upset about this. I, re- I mean, it piles up. I keep taking the subscription. I haven't had time to read it lately. I've been trying to finish a novel and applying to school back to, back to, back, back to college again. So I guess I'm, I'm supposed to be able to see through it. And I, I do to some degree, but. I mean, the last show I called Mr. Sanders, uh, Senator Sanders, uh, uh, he's Delaware, I'm going to speak, anyway, a, a statesman, he's that, he understands, he's a socialist who understands that the American democracy exists within the confines in the, of the constitutional protections, therefore isn't mob rule, which is the problem with the megalomania um, 
celebrity rush that comes with the GOP Republican Party candidates. Also, two-party systems are ridiculous, and anyone who tries to get you to believe that there are just two parties in the United States is lying to you, and they're trying to confuse you. It's a, it's a bar, and like I said, people want, it's unspoken. Can you just figure it out by looking at it? Well, look where that's gotten us. A hundred years of war, number one. Also, we can't talk about it. Well, it's kind of like, well, that's the same sort of biting one's lip that I feel like that victims of crimes feel like, like a rape victim. I can't talk about it. You got to know or you don't. Well, that's also horribly wrong philosophically. I hate that. It's hateable. But unfortunately, I'm, I'm led to believe I've read this before. I don't know if it's true. And I've read that it isn't so acute as badly as it is with Mrs. Clinton. That is Mr. Sanders' usual suspect corporate support um, being representative of a wealthy, worldly neoliberal set. You know, Exxon. You know, they've had to bust that up, but it's headless anyway. Just oil and gas industry, military industrial, um, which runs on the petroleum industrial complex. You know, not to mention all of these, these redheaded cousins you know, of uh, stepchild cousins of uh, uh, of these major problematic institutional conflations and conflagrations, like the prison industrial complex. But that's more turned in at the at the the corpus of the people who are already disenfranchised anyway. So politically, it doesn't matter. Those have already been knocked out of the political speech. That's irrelevant with respect to votes. You vote matters, you ought to vote libertarian in the sense that it isn't our job to be dumping the blood of the American worker off into the seas. Now, technology does allow us all basically to be employed and very few of us to do manual labor. I mean, there still is that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a weird thing that's true. It's kind of, it's, it's very science fictive these days, the way technology is coming to be. It's probably different for someone unlike me who hasn't spent their last 25 years ahead in a book. Most people, often people don't understand me. I don't want to get on that kick. Enough people do that I'll keep talking. So the 16th Amendment was part of a military coup, basically. It should be repealed. Or there should be some stipulation that it can't be pitted toward a war machine. And if you want your federal agency funded, fine, then. The dollar is a bull market. Get a loan. Get a grant. You know, it's a fiat currency anyway. You know, that's fine. Like I said earlier, the federal dollar is fine. That's fine. There's a cause to have some national format standard, you know, bearing currency in the marketplace. I mean, you know, our mariners have to, you know, I mean, it's the dollar matters. It's the American dollar. It's there. But it can't just be representative of South American cocaine and war in the Middle East and oil in the Gulf of Mexico and in the Gulf of California and in the South China Sea or whatever. There's a better way to do it. And whose fault is it? Forensically? Archaeologically? The people who knew better. The people who could say something and do something. The people who could and didn't. Or even if we tried and failed. 
There are too many institutions that are occupied that are in to the letter great institutions. The Constitution is a, it, for its time, and it's still it's it's pretty succinct. It's pretty brief. Now the fugitive slave law is a problem. It's been expunged. It's you know that's that ain't right. It isn't right. It's, it's you know it, it wasn't. But for its time, it was a very progressive piece of document. You know, a piece of governing a governing writ. Very simple, and it, therefore, because it's simple, it can pretty much it's it's plug and play to some degree, regardless of the era in which it's plugged in. They were real careful to say, "Look, this isn't you know this ain't a king. We're not paying to a central. This is you know." I mean, it was an effort in good faith. The Federal Reserve System was created in the same year that the Sixteenth Amendment was passed. Later in the year, it was in December that the Federal Reserve System was implemented. So that was a progressive tool that part of which might have stayed, but the whole imperialistic effort was out of order. Certainly it's out of order now, One hundred, a century later. So for the Federal Reserve Bank is great for, for American entrepreneurs. You know, you know, with all due caveats, if you want to go fund a war or occupation of aggression on foreign soil with the U.S. dollar, you know the answer is no. You may not. I'll say it again. You know, the libertarian platform on foreign policy has got to be the answer to me. I can't. You, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton because she is. Um, she's endorsed by all, all the old money that's. That is represents the what what the uh, English British colonists were, were flee the English colonists were fleeing when they came to the, the New West. You know, British Rail, whatever. You know, I can't. Um, as a, as a socialist, Mr. Sanders at least would understand what his job is. I think, and. Um, Mr. Obama has, I think, I think, I think that Mr. Sanders is an excellent clean pinch off for Mr. Obama, policy wise. Very confident man, Mr. Obama, is in, in my in my vantage. He's done what he can. Now, he has the corporate endorsements that the major two parties have. Just as, you know. Um, and that is what it is. He's a he's a he's a career politician. So is Mr. Sanders. Mr. Trump is not. Um, but you know, one understand a career politician is going to know that a two party system is balderdash. So we have to rely on their elbow grease and their sharp wits. Um. So it's it's Mr. Sanders in the in the fall if you if you if you are um or the libertarian candidate but that's tantamount to to republicanism in terms of republican party voting a libertarian candidate may be in office but they'd never admit it they'd have to come in under one of the two party mantles but you want as libertarian as possible on foreign policy and philanthropic 
All right. Anybody who brings me an appropriations writ to sign in the executive office, I'll say, all right, where is to the penny, the civil corps shadow fund for this, where we will do as much, you know, just, just for a start, just to try to wean the warmongers out a little bit. The, the foreign military interests that are occupying Washington, D.C. Now, of course, I'm being a little sarcastic. They should get out faster. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's Senator Sanders in the fall for the United States presidency to succeed President Barack Obama. A little applied um, background regarding central banking and what I've tried to do about it <clears throat> from my vocational shingle and to justify trying to move on from my career as a journalist and maybe go back to graduate school. Although it looks like I have basically arrived at just going back and getting another bachelor's degree, this time in mathematics. It was either that or an MFA in generative dramaturgy. I either want theater or I want theoretical math because I'm tired of political science. Now I've gotten good at it. I might still kick around and do this here, but I, I don't like it. I mean, I don't mean to say I don't like it, but I'd like a little deviation from my career track. Looks like I'll go back so to, to, to get another bachelor's degree, and that's going to be cute. Uh, the, uh, the algebra's all still there. Uh, I've been studying for my qualifications here at the University of Arizona South. I'll enter the program in the spring. I've got some leveling to do in the fall. But what I was anyway saying was that, uh, what was I saying? Excuse me. Let's see. Oh, in order to try to be diligent in this leg of my journalistic career, before I have to concentrate perhaps way more on, my, on back, going back to school, you know, I brought, uh, I sued the woman who was involved in administrative collection of federal income taxes from me a few years ago. I filed for an extension. She denied it in writing and set into motion a collection. Um, for the big pitch in to um, the central bank, which I can't figure out where all the money's going. And I do know that we are, I hear a lot of information about how our military is fighting foreign wars and war on wars of aggression on foreign soil. And notwithstanding and keeping in mind, having said all the things I just said about the matter in the first half of the show. So, it went through uh, the United States District Court for the District of Arizona. I cited the False Claims Act, the uh, Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations, and Title 42 Civil Rights uh, against the individual woman, not the agency with, for which she works. Um, the judge, uh, who it could be remanded to still, uh, Judge Soto um, in, in Tucson, um, the DeConstantini Courthouse, um, wouldn't hear it. He found in uh, the um, the tax division of the Department of Justice came in and defended the defendant and argued that I was a nonsensical tax protester and that she was um, acting under the authority of federal and official capacity. She do whatever she wants. Very poorly argued, but it did leave the barn door wide open. Nevertheless, the judge just said, all right. You know, he, he wrote that, that uh, basically it's, it's like the Department of Justice puts it. And the United States Attorney General's primary complaint was that it wasn't a False Claims Act 
uh, tractable false claims act uh, grounds for relief because I wasn't I'm not an attorney and and there's there's certain tax bars in the false claims act but anyway so I appealed to the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco and um, here's the brief on appeal um, I actually cited federal rules of civil procedure accidentally instead of federal rules of appellate procedure which was a clerical error and it made my complaint procedurally non-cogent so when the ninth circuit kicked it back and said they weren't interested i filed a motion for reconsideration citing that basically i had cited f the federal rules of civil procedure not the federal rules of appellate procedure and that that was in in the language used by the appellate court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, was that you know that that <clears throat> this procedurally is out of order and there's no no proper ground for us reviewing it exists. Well, what I had cited in the frat, the rules of federal rules of appellate procedure, were that the deadline to appeal, which I missed, can be waived under certain circumstances. Um, one of which being if the court made a mistake or was out of order. Or negligent so when i filed a motion to re for reconsideration i obviously included that there was this clerical error in pro se and the, and the court will accommodate in pro se litigants because they know we're not we're not we're kind of naive or green with respect to how the religion of the court goes and uh, what was april 14th my appellant's brief was due so along with that motion for reconsideration, I went ahead and filed my appellant's brief just in case they decide to take a, they, they, upon reconsideration, they'll hear the case or possibly remand it. And I'll read that to you here. It's a few pages. For the Ninth Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals, appeal number 16-15015, and its appeal of the case was 4-2014-CV-02574 in Tucson for the U.S. District Court for the District of, Ari uh, District of Arizona. Chris Brazewell in pro se, plaintiff appellant. Uh, v. Cynthia Unger, for, uh, and I just, for the Department of Justice here, because that's who answered. That's the federal agent who answered the process service on Ms. Unger. On this appeal, the plaintiff appellant, Mr. Brazewell, asserts that the district court abused its discretion by applying the incorrect law in its dismissal of 414CV02574. Short of an extraordinary writ, a venue for this appeal is sought by way of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 60B, brought directly to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in light of the district court's prejudiced dismissal, which was materially based upon the erroneous application of the law. Mr. Brazewell asserts that the defendant appellee, Ms. Unger's attorney from the Department of Justice, knowingly briefed the case in disregard of her knowledge that a plaintiff, as first principle, does in fact determine the capacity in which a defendant is sued. Consequently, Ms. Unger provided no material dispute in the district court regarding the allegations and the complaints. The district court ultimately dismissed the action without the ambient benefit of having reviewed the core constitutional questions as they were brought thusly. The Court of Appeals reviews for clear error where the district court adopts proposed findings submitted by parties, such as C. Commodity Futures Trading Commi Commission versus Topworth International Limited, Ninth Circuit 2000 case, noting that while review is for clear error, the reviewing court will review with 
quote, particularly close scrutiny when findings are adopted. So a matter of law, abuse of discretion by application of incorrect standard. As first principle, the capacity in which a defendant is sued is not defined by the capacity in which the official acted when engaging in alleged unconstitutional conduct. In fact, the plaintiff describes the context in which the court will weigh a defendant's civil liability. See Hafer v. Milo, 1991, on certiori to Federal Third, citing Price v. Akaka, a.k.a. AKAKA, Ninth Circuit, 1991. Therefore, in its dismissal, the district court committed a clear error in its application of the incorrect standard of blanket sovereign immunity of the United States rather than that of the individual agent's qualified immunity under the particular circumstances. So legalistically, these two standards are very different, of course. Mr. Bracewell asserts that the district court, in its adhesion to the straw man argument put by Ms. Unger's attorney from the Department of Justice, abused its discretion by basing its order to dismiss on the incorrect law. See Jeff D. V. Otter, Ninth Circuit 2011, affirming Casey V. Albertson's Ninth Circuit 2004, ruling regarding abuse of discretion for not applying correct law. Regarding the respondeat superior argument in his briefs, such as the response to the Assistant United States Attorney's motion to dismiss, Mr. Brazewell specifically addressed statutes such as the Little Tucker Act, U.S. Code 28, Section 1346A1, that is the government's right to sue and be sued under the Tucker Act and as accommodated in Burr versus FHA, 1940, and subject matter jurisdiction under the Tucker Act in Licata v. U.S. Postal Service, 1994. Because of Ms. Unger's particular role as a civil servant, though not a law enforcement officer, unlike the armed guards who detained and searched Mr. Brazewell when he ultimately did pay the tax in Phoenix, the appellant briefed the Tucker Act in order to make, in the lower court, in order to make a hypothetical evaluation of a case which might have been brought, but in fact was not, against Ms. Unger's employing agency. The Little Tucker Act was considered for that purpose rather than a Bivens argument, the absence of which Ms. Unger's attorney repeatedly noted. The inferiority of a Bivens claim is addressed later in this brief. In Docket 46, the lower court, the, the Tucker Act official capacity comparison was made in fathom of Ms. Unger's individual civil liberty writ large generally under the circumstances. Mr. Braswell saw no need to have amended the complaint for the purpose of conforming to the defense attorney's arguments that claimed official grounds for bureaucratic sovereignty, and no leave was granted to do so in the prejudice dismissal. There is no respondeat superior defense for Title 42, Section 1983 claims. See Taylor v. List, Ninth Circuit, 1989, and Ashcroft v. Iqbal, Ninth Circuit, 2009. And failure to intervene is sufficient to establish liability under Section 1986 of Title 42. See Robbins v. Meacham, Ninth Circuit, 1995. The district court disregarded the constitutional questions that were specifically brought before the venue regarding Ms. Unger's individual exposure to civil liability under the circumstances that were described in the complaints. Lower court dockets 29 and 29-1. Instead, the district court evaluated the matter by the standards proposed by the District of D Department of Justice attorney that is based on Bivens, Gilbert v. DeGrosa, Atkinson v. O'Neill case law, etc., as if the complaint had been brought against Ms. Unger's employing agency, which it was not. 
The appellant asserts that Department of Justice attorney Waldman, by rights of her station, must have understood that the plaintiff, in fact, determines the capacity in which an official is sued, though she chose to conduct herself otherwise nevertheless. In Docket 46, Mr. Brazewell also noted the increased standards for a federal officer's already high burden of responsibility and liability regarding conduct and immunity as they pertain to constitutional violations. As Wade, for example, in Saucier v. Katz, 2001 Ninth Circuit, and affirmed in Pearson v. Callahan, 10th Circuit, 2009, Mr. Brazewell asserts that the question of individual liability was the simpler, the more philosophically economical, and the most applicable constitutional approach under the circumstances. Judgment regarding jurisdiction per factual errors in order to dismiss. In his order, Docket 51, in the lower court, echoing the defense attorney's argument for dismissal for lack of jurisdiction regarding stated claims for relief pursuant to Title 18, Code Section 1964 of the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, and for lack of jurisdiction for relief pursuant to Title 42, Section 1983 for deprivation of civil rights, the District Court Judge Soto wrote plaintiff's claims clearly relate to Unger's duties in her official capacity as an employee of the IRS, Internal Revenue Service, and action against IRS employees in their official capacity is properly treated as a lawsuit against the United States, and the claims against the individual IRS employee must be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Respectfully, the appellant reiterates here that he did not materially dispute Ms. Unger's facial status as a bureaucrat. In Docket 32 in the lower court, Mr. Braswell observed that Section 1345 of Title 28, U.S. Code, denotes the district court's original jurisdiction where the United States is a party, and that Title 28, Section 1331, denotes the district court's original jurisdiction in civil actions arising under the Constitution of the United States of America. Where arguing reliance in addition to proximate cause on the part of Ms. Unger's challenged activity in his district court briefs, Mr. Brazewell cited the High Court's judgment in Anza v. Ideal Steel, 2006, uh, U.S. Supreme Court, regarding the RICO Act in favor of proximate cause instead of but-for cause. Uh, the Anza case also discussed compensable injury and indictable mail fraud. Among the district court briefs, Mr. Brazewell also cited Allison Engine v. United States, 2008 High Court, which uh, described uh, Supreme Court, which described a logical analog of the nuances of vested civil capacity or agency in an individual agent and the statutory notion of U.S. officialdom, all within the context of bright line questions about fraud against the government apropos Keytam litigation. Also from the district court's order, the judge wrote, Judge Soto, this action arises out of plaintiff's allegations that the United States has no legal authority to tax him. The appellant asserts that this is an incorrect understanding of the complaint, however, which in fact stated that the action had derived from Mr. Brazewell's notion that the United States can have legal authority to tax him, but only insofar as the tax is constitutional and occurring in good faith. Mr. Brazewell here reiterates that the action brought in district court stemmed from Ms. Unger's signatory denial of the appellant's reasonable request for an extension of payment of voluntarily assessed 2013 federal income tax that consequently set into motion an armed collection that was incidental to the punitive interest rate debt assessment against the appellant. The district court order also stated that Mr. Brazewell had failed to meet the high court's burden of subject matter jurisdiction where a defendant enjoys a status of sovereign immunity in her agency. However, Mr. Brazewell reiterates... However, Mr. Brazewell reiterates that he did not endeavor service 
whatsoever to meet a standard of sovereign immunity. Rather, Mr. Brazel asked the court to review, or scramble a jury to review, the individual defendant's civil liability, not that of her employing agency, in light of her signatory role in the denial of Mr. Brazel's request for a payment extension and its relevance to the armed collection and punitive interest rate, which were individually and proximately caused by Ms. Unger's administrative action. The district court's order also stated incorrectly that, in addition to the extent plaintiff seeks to enjoin defendant from collecting taxes against plaintiff, the court has no jurisdiction to grant such relief, and these claims are dismissed. Close quote. The appellant respectfully reiterates here, however, that the language of the complaint did not read enjoin defendant from collecting taxes, collecting taxes, but instead read, per the grounds provided in Title 18, U.S. Code Section 1964A, the petitioner peaceably requests that the court prohibit the respondent and her ad hoc associates who are involved with the unconstitutional operation from any further transgressions of the like against the petitioner. That is, the appellant only sought injunctive relief through Title 18 insofar as the collection as it specifically occurred was unconstitutional, which wasn't reviewed by the court. Notably, the lower court, the, notably the district attorney's office in its reply supporting its motion to dismiss, Docket 50, Assistant U.S. Attorney M. Michael Ambry remarked that the core constitutional claims were apart from and unaffected by any dismissal of the False Claims Act portion of the complaints. Further, previous colloquy by telephone with an Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Conaty and the appellant or the plaintiff reflected some tenable common ground with respect to the constitutional perspective of this case as it has, was brought. Failure to state a claim, RICO, Civil Rights, and KETAM, i.e. False Claims Act. The Department of Justice's second motion to dismiss, Docket 23, stated that the plaintiff failed to allege a felony under Title 18 U.S. Code Section 1961, close quote. However, in the complaints, claims for relief by way of Title 18 Section 1964 provisions for civil RICO remedies were stated. The appellant notes that the text of Title 18, Section 1964 explicitly refers to the modes of operation named in Title 18, Section 1962, such as prohibited activities enforceable under the RICO, a la Section 1962C, which was also noted in the complaints, and that the activities described in Section 1962 are a function of the felonies defined in Section 1961. Among Mr. Braswell's briefs, such as Docket 8, Ms. Unger's activities apropos Section 1961 definitions were iterated, such as Section 1961-1A regarding extortion via unlawful taking, 1B regarding extortionate credit transactions per the letter from the Texas office serving penalty interest and fraud related to mail per use of interstate public post, and related to access devices or identifying documents per use of Mr. Braswell's public government records. The appellant's briefs also included citations of Title 18, Section 1965, regarding venue and process, Section 1966, regarding the expedition of actions, Section 1967, regarding evidence presented at court, Section 1968, regarding civil investigative demand. Also in Mr. Braswell's briefs was Section 1341, regarding the definitions of frauds and swindles, Title 18. 
Further, the Department of Justice attorney repeatedly referred to Mr. Brazewell's complaint as a claim for a refund, arguing Title 26, Section 7421A and 7422A. Rather than the claim, such as for damages, in treble under Title 18, Section 1964, which it was, in fact. In addition to the RICO grounds, provisions for civil actions under Title 42, Section 1983 were uh, added when the complaint was amended, from which Mr. Brazewell's supporting briefs also referred to Title 42, Section 1985 regarding conspiracy to interfere, and Section 1986 regarding neglect to prevent interference, and Section 1988 A regarding proceedings, and B regarding damages and costs, and Section 1994 regarding peonage. Additionally, pursuant to the False Claims Act, grounds for relief cited in the complaints were Title 31, Section 3729A1, B, A, and B, regarding liability for making false claims in the name of the United States government or against the United States government doing business as the civilian Mr. Brazewell, if you will, and Section 3730B2 regarding civil actions for false claims. The district attorney elected not to bring a civil action pursuant to Section 3730A. Nevertheless, it is a fact that the tractability of Mr. Brazewell's claim for civil relief for Section 3730B1 hinged on a decision by the district attorney to lend the office's potential po- credential, excuse me, political credential to the plaintiff. Even without the political support of the district attorney, a plausible Keatham claim was put forward. The district attorney's first reason for supporting dismissal of the Keatham claim was that, quote, the claim is adverse to the United States, close quote. Mr. Braswell asserted in Docket 46 that the best ethical interest of the people of the United States supported his as the stronger claim to a legitimate capacity officially in a key tam action as a relator who is a vested citizen in good standing, and particularly so in light of the only competing claim to civil authority by Ms. Unger et al., a civil servant whom Mr. Braswell perceived to have broken the law and committing tortious acts, thereby transgressing the appellant's constitutional Fifth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment procedural due process guarantees. Operation under a standard of state regulation and violating civil rights. Mr. Braswell asserts that Ms. Unger was the primary and probably the only civil agent of record involved with the tacit management of the actions material to the complaints. Mr. Braswell was not and has not committed or been under investigation or indicted for or convicted of any crime or misdemeanor that would justify any action by the state or the people to impede his civil liberty through marketplace surveillance or hostile financial force by way of any punitive interest rate or similar taking of such a post-adjudicative nature as was administered by Ms. Unger. With that, the defendant's activities were actionable under the Civil Rights, Title 42, Sections 1983, 1995, and 1986. For justifiable action by Ms. Unger on behalf of the people against Mr. Braswell, her legal and just cause for taking cash or punishing the appellant financially required procedural due process. To violate that Fifth Amendment guarantee requires the application of conditional standards such as qualified immunity, used in police or bond-related enforcement or investigations whose extraordinary civil credentials in Arizona are governed by state law, such as the Arizona Police Officer Standards and Training Board in concert with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, for example, in an implementation of criminal procedure which legally suspends a suspect's civil liberties, or, for example, the Arizona Department of Insurance, whose credential is required for a bail bond agent to legally remove a fugitive's civil liberties by Capias. 
as Mr. Brazewell's personal finances are not in plain view of the public, and he has committed no crime, <clears throat> then for Miss Unger to proceed further with her public or private inquiry or annual surveillance, she is required to obtain a warrant or show cause or accuse Mr. Brazewell of what crime he is suspected of or make a business proposal or something in order to attempt to justify her ongoing investigation and her post-adjudicative tempered financial collection because it all necessarily relied upon the transgression of Mr. Brazewell's civil liberties. Constitutional civil liberties. In her conducting of investigations and executing writs of collect, notwithstanding amendments to the Constitution, natural liberties are affirmed unequivocally and roundly in the Constitution. In her conducting of investigations and executing writs of collection against Mr. Brazewell, in light of the aforementioned particular state credentials which are required for such operations in Arizona, the appellant asserts that Ms. Unger is operating under a standard of Arizona state regulation for the purpose of satisfying Title 42, Section 1983 standard. If Ms. Unger were operating in a civil law enforcement capacity, then the suit may have been better brought for a Bivens-style determination, such as what Ms. Unger's motions to dismiss in the district court insisted upon. However, the appellant asserts that the argument in favor of a Bivens-style qualified immunity put forth by Ms. Unger is remarkably immaterial because Ms. Unger does not apparently possess such a credential for law enforcement or court agency. Nevertheless, the consequences of her activity as it was challenged were of a paramilitary nature, armed collection, ensuing, and her role was tantamount to a post-adjudicative administration of criminal procedure, such as punitively financed assessments that were extraordinary to the due process obligations. Mr. Braswell is a peaceable, law-abiding citizen and is a publisher, author, novelist, and journalist. The appellant is also a law-abiding public figure whose personal, professional, and political comings and goings are arguably more accessible from public rights-of-way than those of the average citizen. Ms. Unger is entitled to qualified immunity only insofar as state licensing could provide her with political quarter under certain circumstances during the discharge of specific types of duties such as criminal justice functions. In Arizona, in the state of Arizona, is the police officer's or bond agent's state-qualified credential in its bearing of a standard of the public trust that gives them the vocational flexibility and circumspection to make judgment calls regarding when and if it is necessary to violate civil liberties of suspects. Just as an Arizona police officer or a bond agent for the court cannot commit certain constitutional violations without proper cause and or due process, neither can a federal civil servant such as Ms. Unger, regardless of whether she is a homicide investigator for the FBI or is tasked by the IRS to respond to taxpayer requests for payment extensions. Also, insofar as Ms. Unger's unconstitutional activity was executed as a matter of policy, she has violated the appellant's constitutional protections as a class. Qualified immunity is available for civil, ser for civil servants who are conducting sensitive police work, but such officers at all times must meet heightened standards for their judgment and actions. Key face it perillium, face it per se, in the Latin due to the nature of their work. Ms. Unger is no exception to such a constitutional standard of enforcement. <coughs> Any lack of a proper state credential on her part is not a legitimate excuse, but instead provides further grounds for stripping her of such qualified immunity, alleged. 
that the firearms displayed by the guards who ordered Mr. Brazewell to remove various articles of his clothing during the payment process were not in the hands of Miss Unger or that they were not her personal property is no excuse either because the entire series of events was approximately set into motion by Miss Unger's challenged activity. Individually, her operating under the mantle of a federal agency is no protection. The liability lies with her because the government lies with the people. Yes, she can do her job, but the official capacity argument only works. It's only legitimate insofar as what she's doing is against the law, which the appellant argues that it was against the law. In fact, was against the law. False Claims Act. The tax bar of the False Claims Act, of Title 31, Section 3729D, as noted in the district attorney's motion to dismiss, that is that the FCA does not apply to claims, records, or statements made under the IRS Code of 1986, was, Mr. Brazewell argued, superseded by the constitutional jurisdiction of the district court, insofar as Ms. Unger's actions are alleged to have included constitutional violations such as that of the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause. As noted throughout Mr. Brazewell's briefs, i.e. in Docket 46, citing Davis v. Passman, 1979, case where cause of action and damages remedy can be implied directly under the Constitution when due process clause under the Fifth Amendment is violated. And as, as is captured in the Civil Rights Act, Title 42, Section 1988A, regarding the applicability of statutory and common law in such instances. Mr. Brazewell argued that the FCA tax bar was generally out of order in Docket 46, Docket 32, and Docket 8, where Ms. Unger's actions sounded in tort such as Title 18, Section 1964, Title 42, Section 1983, 1985, 1986, and 1988. Declaratory Judgment Declaratory affirmation of Ms. Unger's individual civil liability would leave the door open for interpretation of the aforementioned Civil RICO Act, Title 18, and Civil Rights Act, Title 42, grounds for relief in a situation where the collection under the circumstances transgressed constitutional Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights to procedural due process. Mr. Braswell expects that the transgression, in terms of its mode of operation, against him as described in the complaints, was not unique during tax year 2013 or other years, and that it continues to now occur in 2016. However, the issue was, the issue was starkly and conveniently illuminated for the 2013 fiscal year by way of Ms. Unger's arbitrary signatory denial of the appellant's reasonable request for a payment extension and the ensuing punitive interest assessment, an armed collection which Ms. Unger singularly and proximately elected to cause. With that, there must exist a class of litigants which could be accommodated by a False Claims Act action or a generic key TAM action, as well as remarkable class litigation under the RICO Act and Civil Rights Act. The appellant understands that FCA rules prevents plaintiffs pro se from bringing FCA actions. Nevertheless, declaratory relief from the circuit court greenlighting such potential litigation when it is properly staffed and credentialed would outline a constructive and judiciable legacy pursuant to the issue at hand. Mr. Brazewell noted in his district court briefs, the executive vesting clause, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1, as fundamental in his argument regarding Ms. Unger's civil liability as well as Mr. Bracewell's own incumbency to civil liability or obligation therewith, which would be equal. And he also asserted that a false claim or writ of attainder 
pursuant to Article One, Section Nine, Clause Three of the of the U.S. Constitution, United States Constitution, had been executed. Him, e.g., sounding in tort, Title Thirty One, Section th Thirty Seven Twenty Nine, A One A, A One B, and Section Thirty Seven Thirty B One and Two. In Docket 8, the appellant cited the legal standard for identifying a writ of attainder found in Acorn v. United States, 2010. Summary and Context of Ms. Unger's Unconstitutional Conduct Ms. Bra Mr. Brazewell asserted that Ms. Unger used her administrative station and her access to a right-of-way of executive function, executive function, rather, for the purpose of denying the appellant's reasonable, properly submitted, timely request for an extension of time to pay his voluntarily assessed federal income tax balance. Mr. Brazewell asserts furthermore that with her signature Ms. Unger set into motion a writ of collection bearing punitive interest and ultimately an armed collection of the debt. The complaint was not brought as a Bivens nor as a Tucker Act action against Ms. Unger's agency of employment because Unger's signature represents the political will of the U.S. agency of her employment only in as much as her activity is, one, constitutional, and two, in conformance with the political will of the people of the United States, neither of which does the appellant perceive to have been or be now the case. Mr. Brazewell maintains that Ms. Unger is the actual nexus of the collection, and not her employing agency, which by definition can only represent the good faith or legal political will of the people of the United States. For Mr. Brazewell's constitutional protections against arbitrary taxation, which took the form of an unconstitutional taking that was ultimately forceful without cause, without procedural due process, to have been violated was certainly not in conformance with the political will of the appellant. Mr. Brazewell asserts that Ms. Unger's specific actions and the resulting armed collection and the resulting interstate operation that ultimately financed a punitive interest rate against Mr. Brazewell all of which were specifically challenged in the complaint, were not incumbent official functions in the general sense either. Notably, the United States Postal Service denied a Freedom of Information Act request for the names of the armed personnel involved at the collection point, as well as for the names of those supervising or involved with the collections letter that was sent from a government office in Austin, Texas. The only agency-wide liability, in fact, incurred by Ms. Unger's individual action as challenged exists insofar as the duties discharged at her station are understood to represent the political will of the people. That underscores the importance of her not violating constitutional guarantees in the name of the people. See Monell versus Department of Social Services, 1978, where, quote, a government entity may be held liable under Title 42, Section 1983, if an action that is alleged to be unconstitutional implements or executes a policy statement, ordinance, regulation, or decision officially adopted and promulgated by that body's officers, close quote. That is, her unconstitutional actions compromise the civil integrity of all citizens, including the appellants. But again, the complaints did not target the agency at large. Also, among the district court briefs, Mr. Brazewell cited the State National Bank of Big Spring versus Jacob J. Liu, 2013, wherein the progressive nature of the American dollar is affirmed to be, in essence, statute, not real property. Apropos the Federal Reserve Act, Title 12, Section 341, regarding the general enumeration of powers for the Federal Reserve Bank. 
Admittedly, the entire argument can be considered in much simpler terms by way of the People's Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, Constitutional Protection Against Capitation Without Enumeration, and notwithstanding the ostensible constitutional questions regarding the substance and historical context of the 16th Amendment, i.e. progressive era trends of labor capitalization, economic industrialization, and preparation for global war, This litigation, nevertheless, began after Senator McCain declined to intervene in the matter due to the constitutional mandate for separation of powers and resolving matters that require or may require litigation. Despite the many excellent implementations of the people's political will for the statutory executive bureau Internal Revenue Service to serve as a watchdog of the dollar as an institution, Ms. Unger's argument in the court's order in the district court, effectively declaring that the IRS is a body wherein no mistakes or constitutional transgressions can possibly occur, or that civil rights violations are outside of judicial review, is unsound, despite Mr. Brazel's admitted willingness as a business owner and as citizen to invest in the political will of the people, and his faith in the dollar as an institution that is generally bullish by definition, the appellant asserts that all of the dollar's transaction to include taxation must occur after a civil fashion, in good faith, and with proper and explicit consent by all parties involved. Use of this brief as a petition for extraordinary writ, if necessary. If a review of the instant matter is unavailable through the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 60B, the appellant respectfully asks that the, court, the circuit court review this brief as a petition for writ of mandamus insofar as the Bauman factors standard has been satisfied under the circumstances to include as factor three where, quote, the district court's order is clearly erroneous as a matter of law, close quote, such as example in Credit Suisse versus the United States District Court, Ninth Circuit, 1997, to wit, quote, none of these guidelines is determinative and all five guidelines need not be satisfied at once for a writ to issue, close quote, and that is quoting the standard found in Bowman v. United States District Court, 9th Circuit, 1977. See also Calderon v. United States District Court, 9th Circuit, 1996, regarding appellant's burden of showing a right to the writ in the circuit court, writ of mandamus. Regarding, quote, questions of law of major importance to the administration of the district courts, close quote, and that the appellant's showing of actual injury and ordinary error may suffice. See Arizona v. United States District Court in re-cement antitrust litigation, 9th Circuit, 1982, regarding more flexible guidelines for issuing a writ of mandamus. Such a writ seeks, one, or would seek, one, to vacate or remand for proper review, proper review, the district court's dismissal for failure to state a proper claim pursuant to RICO grounds, and for failure to state a proper claim pursuant to Title 42 grounds, in light of an abuse of discretion by way of the district court's application of the incorrect standard as has been herein described. 2. To vacate or remand for proper review, the Constitutional Court's order for dismissal for lack of subject matter jurisdiction as has been herein described. 3. To consider the value and potential options for making answerable the attorney from the District of Columbia R. Waldman, consequent to our conducting district court argument in complete disregard of the first principle that a plaintiff describes the capacity in which a suit is brought. 4. 
to vacate and remand the district court's order for dismissal of plaintiff's QTAM claims under the False Claims Act and appoint an attorney to the informal preparus appellant's case for the purpose of perfecting the case and seeking class relief under the False Claims Act or otherwise in order to assist the appellant in deploying a generic QTAM protocol as has been described herein. Herein. Five. To issue or mandate a declaratory judgment affirming that advantage of Ms. Unger's individual civil liability can be proper grounds for relief pursuant to civil RICO and Title 42 claims. 6. To issue or mandate a declaratory judgment affirming that Ms. Unger is acting under a standard of Arizona regulation at her station under the circumstances described, which amounts to proper grounds for potential stripping of qualified immunity for the purpose of reviewing RICO and Title 42 civil relief claims. Signed on this fourth day of March, 2016. Christy Bracewell Appellant. Hereford, Arizona. That's a lot to listen to. Those of you who enjoy that sort of thing, enjoyed it. That's been my writing sample for graduate schools when they asked for them, if I'm applying for philosophy of law-related things. But as I mentioned, it looks like I'm going to go back and get a second bachelor's degree this time in math. Um, so my, my brains have recovered enough from my troubled youth to be able to go back and, and, and take that math now. <laughs> anyway, all very interesting. Um, the Odelay Show with C.G. Brazewell for uh, the, the 8th of June, 2016, brought to you by Brazewell Communications Publishing. Um, and its authors, yours truly, uh, C.G. Brazewell, most recent nonfiction title, Embedded Alive, first-person journalism in the United States of America, available at uh, fusepowder.com, that's F-U-S-E-P-O-W-D-E-R.com, Frank, Union, Sam, Edward, Paul, Ocean, William, David, Edward, Robert.com, also author Denver Day through Brazewell Communications, Pizza Noir, one, Catch as Catch Can, Pizza Noir 2, Alpha Taxonomy, and soon to be out, Pizza Noir 3, Pie in the Sky, also by Denver Day, forthcoming under the final revision now, Hipster Bricks, The Cost of Doing Business, The Price of Egalitarian, Egalitarianism in the, the 21st Century, or It Takes Money to Make Money, a philosophical novel. Get a sniff of Denver Day at www.denverday.com. And pick up books through Brazewell Communications, either in ebook, Moby, or EPUB format, um, by way of uh, fusepowder.com, Brazewell Communications Division website, which will link you with the digital versions, or you can just order the hard copy versions right there, and they'll come directly through me. Um, if you can sell the books, I'll cut you in. If you'd like to stock them, let's talk about that as well. If you'd like to be on this program, Call me at 518-400-2729 or text me or video conference me. That is a Google uh, number. Um, if you'd like to advertise on this show, I'll give it away for free. Um, likewise, contact me. The archives of the Odelay show with C.G. Brazewell are at the aforementioned fusepowder.com adding the slash WordPress to the end of that URL. So fusepowder.com slash WordPress. I believe that's a forward slash. Yeah. 
WordPress. Um, keep listening. Keep in touch. You know, eat your vegetables. Be nice to people. Do your yoga. And the uh, world be free.